Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. Share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO. Online at KFUO.org. You're listening to Concord Matters, where we're seeking to be of one mind in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to seek concordia, that is harmony, that is the opposite of discord, trusting that the scriptures alone will be that source of truth for us by moving our way also through that scripture repeated in the Confessions of the Lutheran Church, the Book of Harmony, the Book of Concord. My guest today, looking at the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, the usual compadre of uh, pokings. I don't know, I'm making up words. Companions. <laughs> Companions, making up words just like Pastor Peter Ill, angelic as he is, I... pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstead, Illinois. I got it fixed, you're good. Cheese. Um, <laughs> I already warned you guys, I'm not on today, and you throw me off, I will not be able to finish a sentence. The angelic Pastor Peter Ill, Pastor Trinity Lutheran Church, Millside, Illinois, the subtle Peter Slayton, social media manager here at the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, and by phone this week, the unanswerable, although we did answer his call, Sean Smith of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, Wine Hill, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois. Again, picking up at the Augsburg Confessions Apology, paragraph 107, where we left off last week, Melanchthon beginning to demonstrate the historicity of our statement, that scripture says it, we says it, and the church in the middle, the early church, says the same thing as well. Pastor Hill, you ready to go? I am absolutely ready to go. You look confused by something, just checking in. One of the screens here is doing something funny, but that's not my problem. It's been that kind of a day. (laughs) That's just fine. Yeah. Oh, but it's going to be great because Melanchthon starts off right away with the snark. Start coming in at paragraph 107? Oh, yeah. Oh, he does. Right off the beginning, we get a good dose. It's great. Truly, he says... It is amazing that the adversaries are in no way moved by so many passages of Scripture, which clearly credit justification to faith. Indeed, Scripture denies this ability to works. Do they think that the same point is repeated so often for no purpose? Do they think that these words fell thoughtlessly from the Holy Spirit? But they have also come up with sophisticated tricks by which they escape these passages. So there you go. There's a snark. You know, is it is it an accident? The scripture says the same thing again and again, and you got to go run into the the deep dark corners, the the back closet of James, and yank a passage out of context to undo all that the Holy Spirit has said. That's exactly what they're trying to do: is to make those moves to not say what Scripture is saying. And I don't want to. Uh, impunge too much on uh, these saints of of the Roman Catholic Church as they were uh, doing these things. 
I, I would rather put things in the best construction and say they had good, godly, pious motives. They didn't want uh, rampant immorality going on. They didn't want people to think uh, that once they had been forgiven, they could just go do whatever and continue in sin. That's not their goal. And so they want a well-ordered, well-disciplined church full of faithful saints. Uh, the problem is they, when they read scripture, they didn't say, Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins. And now that you are made new, go live like a Christian. They added to it, um, hopefully out of the very best possible motives, but it falls flat. And that's where we see uh, Melanchthon's snark here, just really come at it <laughs> about the Holy Spirit. I'd like to imagine right there where we stopped, he did a little bit of a mic drop and and is kind of finished with it. A, well, qu- a quill drop. Yeah, uh, a quill drop. There we yeah, go. Yeah, you, you and Pastor Sean are, you know, country pastors out kind of in the, in the country there, and I've lived on a farm for quite a while. And the, the mental image I get here isn't so much Melanchthon. Well, it's it's Melanchthon trying to nail down their argument as it like like trying to catch a greased pig. Mm. If you ever familiar, go to like you know their state fair or that sort of thing. You'll have these uh, contests with the kids where they actually grease up a pig and the, the piglet runs around and the kids are trying to catch it and it just like slips out of your hands. Yoink, yoink, yoink! It's like he's frustrated. He's just mad at them. He's like, oh, and then he's like, and you're doing this with scripture too. You're doing it with me. You're doing it with scripture. You're just running around any little trick you can find slip right out there. Well, because no matter what passage of scripture he gives, they'd find a way to make it not say what it seemed to say. Pastor Smith? Yeah, well, and I want to jump in on that, too, and say that uh, um, I I think the snark is coming out of frustration here for him at this point. I mean, he's kind of been hammering this on. I mean, this is the, the defense of their original presentation of the confession of their faith. And to, to also, like Pastor Hill, be a little kind to our Catholic brethren, there is this truth about Scripture that we as Lutherans know and call paradox, right? Scripture clearly talks about that we are called to have good works and that we are to be motivated by acts of love and service to our neighbor. And so I, I believe the Catholics are honoring Scripture when they, when they are directing the people towards that thing. What they're failing to do is, is hold in tension the paradox, because we as humans struggle with that tension. We've talked about that before. In previous weeks, it's an uncomfortable kind of feeling, and American evangelicals make the same mistake today. And we can't fall off to one side or the other, because clearly Scripture makes the case that it's all by faith, by grace alone, through Christ alone. But we can't just fall off there and say that we're not motivated to do loving acts of service, right, and good works. And, and, and he's going to get into that in the next article, which is really a continuation of this article but at the same time, they're trying to hold in tension the parts of Scripture that clearly direct the Christian life towards doing good works and living to the glory of God. What they're just failing to do is hold that intention, and so I think Melanchthon's frustrated with them right now. And I'm totally with you guys in wanting to not just come out and Rome bash. I mean, it doesn't help anyone just to point fingers at people for no good reason. But at the same time, the error that is behind their good motive of wanting a nice, lawful, orderly society is believing that the gospel is the greatest threat to goodness that there is, that this idea of free forgiveness of sins for the sake of Christ will be the author of chaos and evil. And and that ultimately is unbelief. It is. You're absolutely right. And so I want to, this is a, an important thing to walk through where we're able to say the Roman Catholic teaching that's identified here by Melanchthon is in error. Clearly, 
However, we want to be able to say their teaching is in error and not damage their reputation either. And so uh, I don't want to do any kind of bashing, but simply say this is the error that they were making. And theologians who teach this way are in error. Uh, but for those who are tempted by similar speech today about encouraging uh, works or saying that you have to have your faith already formed in order to do works, which we're going to get into here in a minute. When we say those kinds of things, we're wrong. But Christ is faithful and calls even errant teachers in the church, including this one, uh, to repent. And that's a good thing. And so we can say that you're wrong without being hateful jerks. And that's that's what I'm going for. And I, I assume that Pastor Smith is with me. That's a very angelic thing of you to do. It is. <laughs> uh, for those of you who didn't catch it last week, uh, there were names ascribed to some of these uh, false teachers and, and people who were teaching uh, uh, falsely. And, and those names were angelic, subtle, and unanswerable uh, as kind of honorific titles. And so Pastor Fisk is just passing those out uh, <laughs> like candy today. And that's fantastic. Yay! I like candy. I also like candy, yes. <laughs> peeps. This is the week for peeps. It is the week for peeps. Yeah, yeah, geez. Got a story about those, but we'll save that for another time. So so the challenge, though, and the frustration that he has, which is going to lead to this snark, is no matter what passage of Scripture he brings forth to demonstrate that Scripture teaches grace and faith alone as the sole reality of our justification for Christ's sake, they find a way around it. Uh, as it like says, a greased pig. Like a greased pig. They have also come up with sophisticated <laughs> tricks by which they escape these passages. They say that these passages of Scripture that speak of faith ought to be received as referring to faith that has been formed. Pastor Il mentioned that a moment ago, and we'll, we'll try to discuss that in a moment. This means that they do not credit justification to faith except on account of love. Yes, they do not credit justification to faith in any way, but only to love, because they dream that faith can can coexist with mortal sin. And that's what I was getting about before, is the gospel, if you believe it, is going to create mortal sin. It's not going to actually create love. It'll create an, an evil thing. And so so we can't let people believe that just believing in Christ will be enough. we got to teach them that it only really counts if that faith you have shows itself forth in enough love or is fully formed in love or is made active in love. And just in case you think, man, that's, all this stuff is, is uh, why are you wrestling with all this stuff of old? There was just a sermon that was preached to the Pope in his private council by one of his, his upper echelon, I don't know what they call these guys, that, that, that serve him in the, in the Vatican just this week on the Reformation and on what to make of Lutheranism being something that, that was ultimately good for the church and Rome needing to be able to accept this. And yet, even as he was trying, and he gave away so much language, he was talking about uh, the reality of justification by faith, but he still came down and said, of course, we mean faith made active through love. So, I mean, he took it all away. If you weren't watching real carefully, it would seem like he was giving us back half the house and then, nope, nope. Not a bit. It's got to be formed. Right. And I think I just saw a greased pig run uh, right outside the studio today. And, you know, just shoop. Uh, as, as that's exactly what they're working on is, oh, yeah, Abraham was saved by faith. You're saved by faith. But that faith can only be done with this uh, love that uh, you get. And so it's not really faith until you've loved. See, I'm kind of confused. Like, what do they mean by faith that has been formed does this mean like you have to have this faith already like i'm kind of i'm, I'm reading this paragraph i'm like i don't know what they mean by faith that has been formed 
And then how they bring love into this. Is love like synonymous with some sort of work? Love is, the, like, love is the form that faith takes when faith is true. Right? Okay. So, so that, that if you have true faith, the only way to know this is love. And it, it isn't really true faith unless that love has been expressed. You got to think of for them. So it's fruit checking again. Back yeah, it was absolutely fruit checking. the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And, you got, are you loving right. your neighbor? How, what are you doing? Sean had something to say. What was that, Sean? Can I, can I jump in here? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, this, this is the idea that uh, for Rome, faith has certain justifying elements in and of itself. It, 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 in other words, makes saving faith possible is basically what they're teaching at this time. If you read the computation, which, become, which comes between um, the, uh, um, the Augsburg Confession and this apology, this response to that confutation, it is pretty clear for them that what they're saying is what Christ did was made faith possible. But if it doesn't manifest itself in love, it's not really faith. And see, there's another paradox, there's another tension here, because again, we check the fruit, and I think you were starting to say that there, uh, Peter Slayton, um, you know, you, you check the fruit, you can certainly see evidence of a living and active faith, and, and I by no means fear that where the, the law is preached to its full sternness and the gospel rec- rescues to its sweetest, I have no doubts that I will have very loving people in this congregations that I'm called to serve, and that I myself will will manifest itself in these sorts of good work fruits. However, I don't judge the validity of my faith based on that, and that's what Rome was teaching at that time. They're failing to hold that paradox again. And so the, if the only, assert, the only certainty that I have, that I have actual faith, and that I have hope of a life everlasting, is by my works of love, well, then I'm still in error. None of us will ever be able to achieve that. And so ultimately, again, the, the snark, the frustration comes out here from Melanchthon, rightly so, because they are in error, and they do need to be rebuked on their error, because they're robbing Christ of the, the true gospel, and that's a serious error. Now, again, they, they're talking from other parts of Scripture, and there's there's seeming paradox, things that seem in contradiction. They're just failing to hold the tension, right? And that's where the error comes in. Well, and, and I think the difficulty with that, when when you're pointing to love as, as, your, as the evidence, it is the case that you can always find some fault or some shortcoming, large or small, in your love. And I think that's where they're saying now you have this doubt. So that's, you know, as I'm working through, I'm understanding this, oh, okay, that's why you can't point to love or works because you can always say well either that was totally selfish on your part to even do that you were completely motivated by some sort of selfish desire to do it or you didn't do it enough you didn't go far enough you you loved only so far you should have gone a little bit further for it to truly be love and so yeah i can see in that situation you faith can't coexist with that there there is no faith in that because i if i'm honest with myself uh, this is the difficulty. I've actually had this conversation with with a friend, um, where the the response that I got back was, well, I, so I said, so, what, "How do you know that you've done enough? You know, do you measure against the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount? What do you look at? Oh, I don't measure myself against anything. I just, I just know. I like literally threw out any sort of a ruler, but could apply perfection to herself because of this. It's like, wait." What what did you just do? You've made yourself certain based on your works 
but you've thrown away any sort of a measuring yeah, stick. It's like a supremely powerful ignorance, an unassailable yeah. ignorant <laughs> arrogance. And there's not much you can do for that. I, I think your point is incredibly well stated, though, that if you're trying to, when you said faith and love can't coexist, that's, they're not talking, what Melanchthon's talking about is that real faith can't, can't coexist with unbelief. They, they fight each other. But what you're saying here is that if you're going to make only real faith that which is expressed or perfectly formed into a perfect kind of love, then you can't ever have any faith at all. Well, even not not even going for perfect love, but just any kind of love you do is going to have a shortcoming. Well, this no ultimately, what. This ultimately yeah. is what, where purgatory comes from, basically. It is, and that was a really kind of odd transition to me, but uh, <laughs> this is, uh, to uh, back up just a little bit regarding love, uh, I find it helpful for myself to, when I read the confessions here and read the apology in Article 4, not to read the word love as love, but to read the word love and say out loud, charity. Mm. Uh, because I think that as Westerners and as Americans, we have this emphasis that love is an emotion. It's a warm, fuzzy and feeling. And it's a warm, fuzzy feeling. And we can even say, I love my wife or, I, you know, I, I love my dog or my cat. And we can talk about love in those ways, but we don't think about it as an outward action. We think about it as an internal thing. But for the medieval Roman Catholics, they were talking about charity. They were talking about acts of service. They were talking about things that you did outwardly for someone else and that were visible. To go so back, that I can Peter, look to what at you, said. you and tell you you're Ex good. Exactly. Yeah. And so it goes back to fruit checking, as you said before. And that's exactly where we fall. And even more, I can check your fruit too. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so we can... that. That's also really uncomfortable. I know. <laughs> um, totally. That's, you're, you're that's at, horrifying. you got to add on to this. Petra Smith is going to come to you. Uh, the fact that, that with charity, though, they're adding pilgrimages. They're mm -hmm. adding uh, all these works of super irrigation that the monks are doing. So it's it's love, but then it's it's not either. And it's charity, but then it's it's not either. It ultimately comes an, an endless ladder to the sky. And why I mentioned purgatory earlier is that the conscience just never seems to get satisfied by any of this. Go ahead, Pastor Smith. Yeah, well, and I, I was going to jump in there with a Luther quote, which Luther says, even my best works are still tainted by selfish motivation, right? And so we have this issue here where, if again, if we're judging, and, and that's a great point that Pastor Hill made there, too, of that this love, you know, we, we have one word in the English language for what many other languages have multiple words for. This specific love is that kind of charity uh, how am I in regards to my neighbor and his needs? And again, Scripture calls us to those things. But if we're judging the the faith and our ability to be saved by it, well then, if I'm honest, even the charity that I have towards my neighbor, sometimes I'm doing because, hey, girls are attracted to guys who go serve, serve at soup kitchens, as a high school or a college Sean Smith might have said. Might have. I'm not, I'm not condemning <laughs> myself there. Not, not that not I ever radio. actually did that. Or, were yeah, you, were you the cool kid in the youth group, Pastor Smith? <laughs> were you that cool youth group kid? When oh, yeah. all I mean, the servant I events? I was the most loving guy ever, yeah. Pastor Smith, <laughs> I, mean, I went to I seminary with you. These things. Yeah. No. I went to seminary with you. No, neither of us were cool in seminary. Uh, I'm still not cool. Uh, I aspire to be more and more like you, Pastor Smith. So we've been we've been walking around what the text actually does next, which is acknowledge that if this is the way you're going to judge us, we're all in in grave trouble. Where does this go? They again abolish the promise and return to the law. If faith receives forgiveness of sins because of love, forgiveness of sins will always be uncertain. 
because we never love as much as we ought to. Indeed, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that forgiveness of sins has been granted to us. And I love that there. It's, it, this is the teaching of Scripture, that love flows from forgiveness. It doesn't create forgiveness. The more love that gets put in, that's when love comes out. But if you're waiting for love to come out before you're going to put any in, you're not going to get much. And this is where, I mean, I, I totally agree with your point, Pastor Hill, about, about charity being kind of like something we have to read into here. But I think for the Reformers, at least, we're, we're acknowledging that this is an, an issue of if we're honest before the law of God, we will be accused at some point. Call love what you will, define it how you will, let it be the entire Ten Commandments or not. The law of God is going to poke holes in it, and we're going to be left bare and naked on the Day of Judgment again. No matter if your love is internal, or if your charity is external, or any other way you parse out the terms, you're exactly right. The law comes to accuse and to kill, hmm. and that is exactly what it does. But the people who are behind the confutation, the the errorists here, are coming and saying, oh, the law, we can fulfill it, we can keep it, and they're saying that the law is something that is doable, it's attainable, and there's no, there's nothing to fear in the law, it's just a, a really good guide. And whereas we'll say, yes, the law is a guide, but when you're guided by the law, you are also accused, killed, and condemned by it. And the only thing you can do is run to Christ. Mm-hmm. I found that this... No, oh, go ahead, Pastor Sean. Oh, I was just going to jump in and say, there's a there's a uh, quill drop moment, as you guys were talking about here earlier, uh, for Melanchthon. I mean, great line here. It says, forgiveness of sins will always be uncertain. If that's the measuring, th- or if that's the nature of of how I have certainty that I have saving faith, then it's always going to be uncertain, and and this is what we've continued to talk about here. Uh, to to use my my hashtag phrase uh, from a while back, you know, we have a God problem, but God is our solution. Um, they're actually saying the opposite. They're teaching the opposite of this problem. We have a God problem, but I can be the means of my own solution and my faith formed by love. That's that. I don't know if you read that Latin earlier. That's in the text there, or not the fides formata. That's that's exactly what it means. Faith formed by love, and. Uh, if that's if that's my hope, then it's always going to be uncertain because, as we've continued to talk about here, um, it's it's just never enough, and it still is tainted by sin and selfish motivations. Um, but when we recognize that God in Christ Jesus is the perfect sol- solution, He fulfills all righteousness for us. Well, then we have certainty because then when my conscience is troubled on my deathbed or I'm in the the midst of struggle in this earthly life, seeing only my sin before my eyes, I need certainty that I have any kind of hope beyond this broken, sin-wrecked world right now. One of the... The next line right after that, the where, where Melanchthon says, Indeed, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that forgiveness of sins has been granted to us. And that's where I have found that to be difficult. I don't know if the most difficult or just one of the areas of difficulty is in teaching my kids that. Uh, especially in the midst of discipline, correction, hey, you know, don't treat your sibling like that. Don't treat your parents like that. Don't behave in that way. Trying to correct them while keeping this in mind that while I do need to correct them, ultimately what they need is the gospel. And how do I then apply that to them without falling into all of these errors that we've been talking about? That's really easy, I think, to give my children the impression that it's that outward love that's the most important as opposed to the forgiveness 
that they've received. Um, thoughts on that, guys? I mean, that's that's difficult. It, it's oh, I, oh, ah, we, we all want to go. go. All three pastors <laughs> are like ready to jump on this one. <laughs> Pastor Smith, Pastor you're Smith. on the phone. We'll give it to you. Okay, so I mean, there's there's a key thing in there that you are teaching them whether uh, uh, by by right knowledge of it, speaking the words of it or not, and the fact that. I believe they still live in your house, right? Yes, still they do. Your children, and you still have that love for them—that you are not willing to forsake them and put them out of their out of your house hmm. because of their mistakes. And that's the, so that's far. the love our our heavenly. Yeah, well, <laughs> we we are imperfect sinners here in this world, but our heavenly Father is perfectly loving and we learn this when he teaches especially in luke the nature of the lord's prayer right how much of you who are evil do these things how much will your perfect heavenly father do these things and that's mm. exactly you are teaching them um you know and, and it might be helpful to point to those sorts of things too and say look you're still my children you know i'm not i'm not putting you out of my house and because you're my children, I want you to reflect that image, uh, and, and it's being formed through discipline, and, the, and our Heavenly Father does the same things with us. But he doesn't go back on our baptism, which makes that justification that Christ won for us on the cross. That's what delivers it to us. We become children of the Heavenly Father. We are heirs of the kingdom. He doesn't go back on that promise. And then he works through discipline indeed. Um, to to guide us in how we live as his children, but he doesn't put us out of the house. And uh, that's very well said. Uh, Peter, your reference before about your children reminded me of somebody who was talking about his uh, education in a Lutheran school, and he said that he was regularly taught that... uh, you know, good Christians do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. And he said to me, you know, it dawned on me when I was, you know, about 15 or 16 that good Christians don't chew gum in class. Good Christians don't run in the hallway. Good Christians tuck their shirts in. But I didn't hear an awful lot about good Christians believing in Jesus. Hmm. And that really resonates with what you had said before, Peter, that as we talk and convey what a Christian life is, we really need to emphasize that the Christian life is one of following Christ and receiving both the law and the gospel, that we don't uh, simply focus on the law because that's what we can see and that's what we can fruit check, but (laughs) rather we go on and say, uh, here is the law. Here is the gospel, and empowered by Christ, we strive to keep the law, and for where we are imperfect, those many, many times, we pray that the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit would continue to fill us. And just before yeah. we go, before we go into break here, uh, if I could if I could jump on this dog pile, because I think you guys have both said very good things, but what this demonstrates, to me at least, is, is a problem we have in general, that we want to make the gospel an idea, a teaching that we can just kind of transport as knowledge from one person to another, right? So I want to give my kids this knowledge. I want them to know who Jesus is and what he's done. I want them to understand grace. But there's a certain point, and I think this is the point of Melanchthon's statement here, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that forgiveness of sins has already been granted. The way I learn grace is not by someone telling me, grace is like this, grace is like that. I learn grace when grace is done to me. And as a parent, Super challenging because you've got to you've got to actually teach them the law too. <laughs> so you can't you can't tell them that there is no law. It's the law of gospel reality. We've talked about a number of times here. You have to teach the law and the gospel. But then this is where again, what is Walther's comment? The gospel must predominate 
in your relationship with your children. So as much as today or tomorrow, I have to be wrathful or, or am wrathful. As much as today or tomorrow, I have to draw a line. I have to say, you can do this. You can't do that. This goes to what Pastor Smith said very well at the start. Whose children are they? They're yours. And what are you going to, what is your ultimate disposition toward them? Grace. And there is a big distinction between the Protestant Christian parents who who emphasize obedience as the role of of the life of the family, mm. and what we would say as Lutherans that the the role of life of the family is is forgiveness of sins. I remember a moment with uh, uh, one of my daughters. At some point, we had had something happen at the dinner table, and we had I think she had gotten pretty upset, and and so somebody was in tears, maybe several of them at one point, and we're all kind of angry, and we're eating our food or whatever, and uh, I think I said something like, "Are you going to be okay?" And she said, it's really wonderful that we're Christians and we still love each other. And, Mm. you know, I didn't teach her to say that. It's just the way we act with each other over time. It kind of, it builds, it grows, and we become, by being loved, those who are loving. Where do we get this? So does it come from me as father? Does it come from my wife as mother? No, it comes from going to church where the real Heavenly Father gives that love to us in word and sacrament, gospel, actual grace. Talking more about that on the other side of this break. Concord Matters. Stick around. So what are you doing the last week of July? How about spending it with a bunch of fellow Lutherans at the 2017 Institute for Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music on the lovely campus of Concordia University, Chicago. You'll be singing, praying, learning, loving, and growing together in the Lord. The Institute is for everyone who's passionate about worship. The theme this year is the just live by faith. Make it plain in sermon, service, song. There'll be a hymn festival, concert by National Lutheran Choir, insightful keynotes by David Peterson, William Swirla, and Kevin Hildebrandt, tons of workshops covering the gamut of worship, and you get to hear Daniel Gard give us the goods on the book of Habakkuk. Yeah, you want to be there. July 25th through 28th. You'll be so glad you did. Register today at www.lcms.org slash worship institute. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor Chris Rosebro answer the question, when Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed, is he talking about physical healing? We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on the resurrection of Christ, and we'll look forward to Good Friday and Easter Sunday with Dr. Carl Fakencher. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. In 17th century Salem, Massachusetts, a mass hysteria led to over 160 people being accused of witchcraft and 19 executions. On April 11, 1692, Samuel Sewell, printer and magistrate, wrote in his diary, went to Salem where in the meeting house, the persons accused of witchcraft were examined. Several years after the trials, only one judge gave a formal apology for his role, Samuel Sewell. 
He went on in 1700 to also firmly denounce slavery and published one of the first anti-slavery tracts published in New England, The Selling of Joseph. Quoting several biblical passages, including Exodus 12:16, And seeing God hath said, He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. with Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, looking to have the mind of Christ by looking to the mind given us in Scripture, talking about the distinction between justification by grace alone in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession and justification by faith made active through love. That is, how are you going to judge whether or not you're a believer? Do you look at Jesus and know that you are loved? Or do you look at yourself and see how much you do love? And we left off talking about uh, letting this be a a practice or a habit within the family as well and, and developing this idea that as a father just gives us love, so also that's our, our interaction with each other, that grace predominates in our lives. This isn't something we necessarily can teach has to be done. It's what is done when God pours out his love to us in word and sacrament, and then we, as Christians, love each other. Pastor Smith on the line uh, wanted to say something more about that. Yes, and we were talking about that in the way that, uh, you know, the words that we use reminding our children of the love that we have for them and how we interact and so forth. But Pastor L gave a great example of, you know, what can even happen in our Lutheran schools and that tension. I mean, schools by their very nature really are quite law-oriented. I mean, you are literally being evaluated on what you are learning and so forth. You're being formed, you're being shaped there. Um, but here I, I use the example of um, one of my, uh, or not one of my friends, uh, my fiance actually, who's a classical Lutheran school teacher. She's um, not your friend? Well, she oh. is my friend. I tangent. Let's let's get back. She's my fiance. She's a classical Lutheran school teacher, but she always says that she's really quite um, glad that they have chapel every single day uh, when they meet for school, because that begins their day in the gospel. Because we can't forget that, especially for us as Lutheran Christians, the gospel isn't just something kind of spiritual and kind of just hanging there, but the gospel is actually located somewhere. For us, it's in the Word and the sacraments, and the sacraments is that gospel made physical, tangible, real, something that we can interact with, and uh, it's very important that we do that. I mean, Martin Luther, actually, in his explanation of the third article of the Creed and how the Holy Spirit works, bringing us that gospel, makes this very clear that he points us to the Church, where the, the Church is gathered around that Word, and it receives the sacraments. And that's really important for us, too, that even within our own families, we recognize that it's important for us to be in worship together. And that, uh, Pastor Fisk, as you were saying, you know, that, that your, your daughter was really appreciative that, we, that you're Christians and that you love each other, and that is located somewhere, namely in that word that binds you together as a family, that as you read the, the scriptures together as a family— and as you have family devotions and the study of all that, all of that serves, once again, as somewhat even a subtle reminder that this gospel is the very foundation of this family, so that when you have to do that formation, when you have to do that that discipline uh, uh, aspect in forming your children, that that gospel is so foundational that it, that it, it can be located somewhere 
that it influences the, the very aspects of everything else that you do. So we can't forget the need for daily devotions and study of God's Word. We can't forget the need for, in our Lutheran schools, to have daily chapel, which grounds us in that gospel for the work of the law informing and, and uh, shaping us in the way that we live as the children of God. You're getting at that idea. I was trying to get it before about the gospel not being an idea, but something that's done to you. It is an idea, too, and we can talk about it, but that in the Lord's Supper, I'm not pondering a theory in great depth. I'm having grace done to me. When Jesus is dying on the cross, this isn't a a mathematical equation for us to discover. He is doing grace to the world, and that, that that's first— and then our talking about it and understanding it is second. We got to do that because we want to defend it. Now that we have it being done, we don't want it to be taken away. But it's it's not first a theory; it, it is a, a real, living, active thing. And after the gospel has been done to us, when we've when we've been graced, mm. and, and I know that's terrible English, but when we've <laughs> received that grace that God acts on us from the outside, then we go on and we don't violate our paradox. And I think the next section in the apology here is going to go into this, that we aren't going to, oh, love, we don't need love. Who needs love? No. Instead, we say, now that I have been loved by God, I get to live in that love and I get to express that love. Uh, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he teaches us what it is to be forgiven as then we go out and be forgiving. He teaches us what it is to be loved as we go out and love. And we do imperfectly still keep the law. And that's exactly what we do uh, going forward. I want to push it even further. I mean, okay, it's more than that he, that he teaches us to be loved. And so, so, but he, he loves us until we're lovable. He, he, he pours love in and that's what changes us. It transforms us. It, it is the doing of the love upon us. So when, again, when this is all came out of uh, Peter uh, Slayton, you're, you're pointing out to this quote here, because it is, it's a profound quote. Mm-hmm. We do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that forgiveness of sins has been granted to us. That isn't saying that like we're sitting there stamping our foot. Well, God, until you love me, I'm not going to try to love. It's saying that love all has to flow from God in the first place. And the only way it's ever going to happen is if he does it to us. So here's and because here's, he is love. Yes. Yeah. So here's something that I found to be helpful as I'm as I'm thinking about this, particularly in regards to the Ten Commandments, um, and then teaching my children as a father teaches his children. And what I found to be helpful at the very beginning, um, in Exodus 20, when God first gives the Ten Commandments, he he starts it off with, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt." Out of the house of slavery. Out of the house of slavery. I am the God who saved you. And yep. we often forget. We move straight into the don't have any other gods, you know, the don't don't have idols. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You know, all we go into the 10 really quickly, but we forget he actually starts this with gospel. And so when you look at it that way, what we were talking about last week, you know, the 10 commandments are, are God's will. It's not just this word of law that you must keep. It's, hey, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I sent my son to die on the cross for you. I have paid for your sins. The cost is completely covered. It's done. Oh, by the way, here's here's how you can now live. You are now freed to live in this way. I'm your God. Just worship me. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Love my word. I have given it to you so you can love, so you can find rest in it. I have given you authority. I have given you a prayer. So you can just go through the Ten Commandments. And it's almost as if God is saying... I know the way for you to live. I have given you 
I'm showing you the way to have your best life now. <laughs> almost like somebody said, almost like somebody said, I am the way and the truth yeah. and the life like that. Yeah. But it, it, then it becomes, it's it's not just this list of things, where we, we tend to do it, this, this list of things that I have to fulfill, these list of rules I have to keep, which even as we teach our kids the Ten Commandments, as I'm correcting them, as I'm disciplining them, it's very easy to bring it across that way. But when we make that mental shift to, this is the way God ordered creation to for it to work. He saved us. Now we get to do this. This is there. There is freedom in that. And I think the 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 uh, adversaries are are afraid of that freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, very clearly, that's what we're getting. They're afraid of that freedom, and they're afraid of what somebody might do with that freedom if we don't turn it back into a list. They're afraid that goodness isn't good enough. You need something more. It, it, this has been a point I've been harping on now for a couple of weeks. Everywhere I can. We, we don't believe goodness is good enough. We think it has to be rewarded or we think it has to be threatened with punishments. Otherwise, it won't be done, which is actually true for sinful man. Yeah, but, but we the do just, operate that way. But the justified <laughs> man is truly justified. You are truly righteous in Christ. It's not a lie. It's not a mistake. It is declared. It is a fact. And it will have an effect. And that effect's going to be love. And going through all of this in this conversation about law and gospel keeps me thinking that law and gospel is not merely an event. It's not that you hear the law and then you hear the gospel and then you're done until you sin and you need to hear the law and then the gospel again. Rather, it's a lifestyle. You you hear the law and then you hear the gospel, the forgiveness of your sins. And then you live according to the law until the law comes and accuses you. And so it is a process, a daily process. Uh, a daily life of contrition and repentance, as the catechism says. This is the baptized life. This is the law gospel life. And this is the life that we live according to, uh, well, the apology to the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Smith, we've been running rough shot over you. You ready for something? We can't well, see him yeah, raising and, his hand. I can't commend what the Peters are saying there enough. But, uh, yeah, actually, you made me think of Peter Slayton, the way that you presented the way the Ten Commandments are presented there in Scripture. Again, our earthly fathers provide an image of this for us, um, because there is an aspect, um, you know, where my father informing me growing up would have the threat of punishment for me if, if I did wrong, right? I might receive a spanking or be grounded or things of that nature. But I remember one time especially that very much sticks in my mind in this message. You know, he, he kind of reflected God's words there in the giving of the Ten Commandments, where basically he told me, you know, I'm your father. I work hard, and I put this roof over your head. And because I've done this for you, I expect you to, to live this way, right? And he was actually showing me love there. And, and formed by that love, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I do kind of like having this roof over my head. And I'm rather kind of thankful that I have like a warm place to sleep at night and things like that. And, and so, yeah, the, our earthly fathers provide this reflection as, as well, because there is that threat of punishment. We can't nullify that. The, the threats and terrors of hell um, for our sin is, is there. But also the, the love is not so motivated by the threats and terrors of hell. I don't keep the law because of the threats and terrors of hell, or at least I, I don't anyway. Maybe you guys do. I don't know. But uh, I Sometimes find myself... I do. Yeah, well, and I mean, it certainly calls me to wake up and realize that there is, like, a real punishment here, but I'm not motivated to the love um, because of those things. I'm motivated by the gospel love, the perfect love of our Heavenly Father made clear to us in Him who is love, and, and then he says, I have made you my child. 
I'll, the waters of holy baptism. I'll avoid the commission of sin in order to avoid punishment, but I will not pursue avoiding the omission of of goodness, right? Uh, in order well, in order to get, avoid punishment. Yeah, and it almost seems like uh, Pastor Sean is reading ahead a little bit uh, as we go. And paragraph one eleven goes on, and it's really helpful in this regard. We also say that love ought to follow faith, as Paul also says in Galatians five verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And as we go back to what we'd been talking about before, about this faith which is formed by love, that's not what Luther is saying about, or what Melanchthon is saying about James at all. Instead, he's saying, this is faith that is faith all by itself. It has been formed by God and it expresses itself in love. Whereas they were saying, you have to have this love pulled together inside of you in order to really have faith. And so they're talking in different categories, but this is the faith that believes in Christ that then expresses itself in love. That is the love that parents have for their children, that husbands and wives have for each other that uh, we continue to express in many different ways because we are loved by God at the altar, in the font, in the hearing of the sermon, in the hearing of the absolution. As we receive these very gifts of God, we go and we are able to absolve our neighbors when they sin against us. We are able to go and receive, uh, to go and give those very gifts that we've been graced by. And sometimes without even really knowing that's what you're doing. Again, yeah. It, you know, Most it, of the time without knowing that's what you're doing. It's a disposition. You just get in this habit of being under grace and it starts to dominate things. I remember President Harrison at a Higher Things uh, conference talking about, and he pulled this from Luther. I think we've talked about this maybe in here, that faith is like an empty sack and need something to be put into it. And it, so we need the grace to be put into our sack, otherwise we have nothing, uh, nothing to stand on. And so we're, we're walking around with these empty sacks filled with God's grace, God's mercy for us and Jesus on the cross. But it kind of struck me as he was talking about that that one day, that my sack's got a lot of holes in it. And so I'm constantly leaking this grace. I don't just naturally have an ability to hold on to grace in myself. And so I need more grace to be piled in. This kind of gets you into the idea about forgiveness of sins being something that we constantly practice, word and sacrament being something that we constantly practice. But what that means then, if you take this seriously, and the analogy, I'm playing with the analogy because it's going to break, but it's I like the way it breaks. That means that everywhere I go, I'm leaving a puddle of grace behind me. I'm dragging this grace has been poured in through Christ, and it's on the ground with me so that even when I'm in my sinful moments, my, my conflict, my selfish moments with other, other human beings, we're standing on this grace that we're bringing with us, whether we know it or not. And we just keep going back and getting more. And we are literally then salt to the world, light to the world and so forth. I know you think it's funny. I'm talking about puddles and holes and sacks. Yes, uh, Pastor Hill. So I'm going to say you're the one who gets to talk next. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but your point is spot on. Absolutely. And so it, we can't help but overflow. And it reminds us of Psalm 23, 6, that our cup runs over. Yeah. And indeed it does. And I realize I just changed metaphors. No, but, but the, it's the same okay. idea. No, it's it exactly is the same it. idea that uh, we cannot contain the love of God that he has given to us, that he has uh, been uh, that he has uh, graced us with. And so it runs over and it runs to our neighbor. Thanks be to God that it does, because if it was up to me to love my neighbor, if it was up to me to show charity to my neighbor, man, I am in a world of hurt. But it is the grace of God that just overruns me and what I can do that this this habit uh, or this practice of of faithful love 
grows in a Christian. I don't want to skip over the end of, uh, you, you jumped ahead to, to paragraph 111, but I don't want to miss the last part of paragraph 110 where it says, so the adversaries in forgiveness of sins and justification require confidence in one's own love. That gets to what what Peter Slayton was saying earlier about never being able to quite find a certainty in myself. In this way, they completely abolish the gospel, it says, about the free forgiveness of sins. Although at the same time, they do not offer this love or understand it unless they believe that forgiveness of sins is freely received. So it kind of leaves them in the darkness. And they then we, as you pointed out then, uh, Pastor Hill, that uh, they, they look at this passage in Galatians 5, verse 6, which in, in theory is the big Roman Catholic passage. And we're saying, no, this one, your passage actually proves our point as well. We just got about uh, five minutes left here, a little bit less. Pastor Smith, uh, we're, we keep uh, ignoring you. You're in the darkness. You want to speak no, out of the corner? I, I was just loving uh, Pastor Ill's more angelic metaphor than your empty sack with holes in it. Um, did yeah, you like my subtle Joel Osteen reference? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want I want to add on here to the to the you know the whole grace, especially because the adversaries are very fixated on almost this idea that you have to doubt in order to have any sort of faith. I mean, it's it's an I can't even say it without it. It doesn't make sense when I say but that's it. exactly to right. Doubt the, to have faith. The Roman Catholics, I think, more or less do teach that. But they basically, my understanding is their current catechism anathematizes certainty. Mm-hmm. And, and that assurance. So, I mean, we've got that all over here in the Augsburg Confession. But one of the things that struck me is they are, in a very real sense, playing off our own human nature, our own sinful tendency. Mm-hmm. We do doubt. We are constantly doubting our standing before God. God knows this. And that's, you know, I believe one of the reasons why he instituted the means of grace, the sacraments, because he gives us something actually objective. So when I'm worried that my sack is full of holes and it's emptying out, I can actually know mm-hmm. that it is actually getting filled. I am actually receiving forgiveness. There is an objective outside myself place where this is happening to give me this certainty. And, you know, as we started getting into the sacraments further into the apology, I mean, that's going to become a big deal too. No, you have these things. That's what they're there for uh, because God knows that we have this doubt. We always doubt, are we forgiven? Well, there's, if, you're, if you doubt that general forgiveness, that general absolution in, in the service, well, you have your pastor you can go to for that private confession absolution that's more specific. Do you doubt that you've been forgiven? Well, you just tasted forgiveness on your lips. The water touched your head or you were immersed in it. However you ended up being baptized, it actually happened to you. Um, we, you don't need to doubt. God has given us ways to know because he knows that we're going to struggle with this. And this particular... Yeah. Temp- oh, so go ahead, Pastor Smith. Well, I was going to jump in and say, yeah, this is, uh, to return to Pastor Ill's more angelic uh, metaphor again, this is the great beauty of the Lord's Supper. I remember in my own life, too, because we, again, are prone to this doubt, as uh, Peter Slayton just pointed out. Um, I suffered some health issues uh, several years ago that were results of my own poor choices in life. I was dealing with health issues uh, made by poor choices in addressing my health. And I remember approaching the altar, right? And I received Christ's broken body for my broken body, for all my poor choices. And it gave me certainty that Christ died for my poor choices, too. And, it, and that's just in a small sense. I mean, we struggle with much greater sins than poor health choices that we make for ourselves and things, right? And so how do I have that certainty? And this is why this is such a big deal 
for the Lutherans is because even in Luther's own life, who's not writing this, Melanchthon is, but in Luther's own life, I mean, he literally mortified his body. He beat himself. And as a Catholic friend once reminded me, well, that was just Luther being crazy. And it's like, right. But was he that crazy? Because this was clearly what was taught to him and formed in him in the teaching of the Church at that time. And that's why the recovery of the Gospel probably literally literally saves Luther's life. And oh, by the way, the Gospel does that for every terrified conscience and sinner out there. We receive such great comfort in the real Gospel, the pure, objective work of Christ— that it will manifest itself in loving acts, and we don't have to mortify and beat ourselves because we're so terrified um, that if we don't produce these works of love, then we don't really have any hope. Absolutely right. Hearing you talk about that reminds me of how this is a temptation for every Christian, for our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, for our evangelical and other Protestant uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for Lutherans, as we want to say, oh, I have to whip myself into shape, I have to I, I have to feel forgiven, and I have to kind of wrestle through this doubt. And I think sometimes we we take a little bit of, of Christian pride, pious pride, in being able to roll up our sleeves and say, here are the doubts and the uncertainties that God has rescued me from, because we have to prove to ourselves that we're worth it. But the fact is, Christ died for us when we were enemies of God. And we have this full and total certainty. When we were enemies of God, Christ Jesus died for us. And when he died for us, he removed all doubts. His uh, statement from the cross wasn't, it might be finished. It could be finished. If you whip yourself into shape, I think it I could be finished. I think I can. Yeah, this is not, yeah. The little engine that could. Right. Yeah. No, I, I understood. I yeah, yeah. was trying not to make a joke there, but uh, as we go, we have complete and total certainty, as Christ our Lord says from the cross, it is finished. And so it is. And we're going to hear that this weekend. It's going to be fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> Amen. How can he who did not spare his own son possibly turn his back on you now? And that's that's the thing about Christian doubt. Right. So here we are thinking my little omission or commission now has segregated me from Christ, but he's already done all the work. Why would he turn his back on us now? That is the beauty of the grace in which our faith is free to rest that justifies us totally, sufficiently, completely because of the cross of Jesus. As my brothers in arms just said a moment ago that we all get to hear about again one more time and ever and eternally one more time this Good Friday and Holy Week. I hope you also are making your way toward a triadum somewhere near you. My guest today, Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millsat, Illinois, Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul Winehill and Emmanuel West Point, and Mr. Peter Slayton, Social Media Manager of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod here on Concord Matters, wanting to all remind you not only that Christ died for you, but that he did it because he loved you so surely. He's not going to leave you the hateful little fear monger that you are. He's going to make you one who loves your neighbor as yourself. You don't believe it? Believe it, because it's coming. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but it will happen when we all wake up together at the dawn.